This evening, brothers and sisters, we return uh, back to the book of Joshua. This evening, we're looking at chapters 11 and 12, and 12 because I am going to summarize uh, chapter 12. I believe that I can do so easily and that you can go and, and look at it um, on your time. But because of the amount of time that I have, I'm really going to uh, vest myself in uh, chapter 11. And again, uh, chapter 12, I will summarize for you. So in an overarching approach to this, you should know that the first 12 chapters is all about the conquering of the land, the conquest. And then the next 12 chapters is about the settlement of the land. There is still some conquering going on, but primarily what you have in the first 12. And so what we have before us tonight is the last or the, the primary um, goal of conquering the land, the end of this section, if you will. So I'll comment on that some more as we go along. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let us give careful attention to it. Chapter 11, verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in the Fatdor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Mesperat Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms, and they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone that Joshua burned, and all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, 
and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. And Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made a peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. A glorious Heavenly Father, again, we ask that you would illumine our minds as we hear that which you would have us to hear from this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Little unorthodox, but as a Christian, when one takes stock of the landscape all around us today, things can at times seem to be somewhat overwhelming. It is no secret that as a society, society as a whole has rejected the Judeo-Christian principles that this nation was founded upon. We should have been able to see this, but one glaring example of the, that reality manifested itself during our recent global pandemic. It was actually stated that liquor stores were essential and thus were able to remain open while churches were not and therefore had to be closed down. The Bible has been removed from the public square and replaced with human secularist ideologies. And so Christians in many circles are now faced with the prospect of being labeled as bigots and haters and the like. This so simply because they believe, for example, that they are only, there are only two genders, male and female. Simply because they believe marriage is only supposed to be between a man and a woman. Sex is supposed to be between, limited to the confines of, of that union and the product of that activity, children have a right to the life God himself has given them. It used to be that those who were indulging in that which God deemed to be unnatural would say things like, we just want to be left alone to live our lives, to love who we want to love. Now that is no longer the case. Instead, the voices that used to be quietly Advancing that which the Bible deems to be wrong are now loudly demanding that there be some adverse consequences for those who do not embrace that which Scripture declares to be unembraceable for those who are called by God's name. In the midst of all this, we, that is Christians, have to deal with our own wayward hearts We're commanded not to be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we might be able to determine that which is right and good in the sight of our God. But as Paul says in Romans 7, there is an ongoing battle between the spirit and the old man, the body of sin and the sin that so easily besets all of us. There are all kinds of stuff going on in this realm. Physical and mental suffering, familial and marital strife, workplace issues, children, elderly parent issues, temptations on all sides of us. Jesus himself said, in the world you will have temptation or tribulation rather. Notice he didn't say you might have tribulation. He said you will have tribulation. And then in the midst of that, there is the presence of a great enemy, the general of the forces of darkness himself, the devil, the accuser of the brethren. In Ephesians 6, we are told that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, what I've just expounded is the ravages of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the overwhelming assault they have on our personhood, our senses. And why, you ask, did I go down that road? How does it pertain to our text? To answer that question, we must first remind ourselves of Joshua's historical redemptive position as a type of Christ. The people of God, Israel, were let out of bondage and into the land that was promised to them. As we've seen throughout the pages of this book so far, and through what we've read or seen in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the people were rescued from, they were saved by God. But they were not absolved of their duty to fight the battles that were laid out before them. God was going to be the ultimate reason for their victory, to his praise, for his glory. But in the midst of all this, they were to bring glory to him by and through their obedience to him as they synergistically participated in the march to peace. I remind you that when we were looking at chapter 1 and I did the opening introductory, I talked about the fact that Ralph Davis said that when you look at this particular book, we commonly some, we're commonly thinking that we're talking about moving to the promised land. But it's more that we're moving from a point, from point to point in glory to a place of peace. And therefore, at the end of this, you see that they're talking about they had rest throughout the land. But again, there's sin, there's dying, there's all this that occurs in this particular book. So what we're seeing is the road to glory that we're traveling as we're being sanctified. So in like manner to what I just talked about, we have been saved, that is justified by God. But in our sanctification, we're called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's to be mindful of who we are, whose we are, and why we are. Here in chapter, uh, this two, in these two chapters, 11 and 12, which are directly connected to chapter 10, we're told of Israel's final act of primary conquest. 
The first 12 chapters, as I said, are primarily concerned with the conquest of the land, while the second half is primarily concerned with the settlement of the land. So here we're told of the primary conquest of the land that was carried out in the physical realm with physical tools of war. But on this side of the cross, we are told that though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, Scripture tells us, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Nadine, I hear all that, but you still haven't answered the question we asked. Why did we go down this road? The simple answer is, as they were waging a war then, so too are we right now. They fought in and for Joshua, the type of Christ. We fight in and for Jesus Christ, the true and better Joshua. In both cases, it was and is for the advancement of God's kingdom for his glory and his purposes. The enemies might appear to be different, but the principles associated with victory are exactly the same. And so I thought with that in mind that I would want, I want to share some of the principles, those principles that I see in this text that we should incorporate into our lives as we travel this road to glory, to our rest in Christ. The first principle that I'd like to suggest to you is that you take stock, that you take stock of your situation. That's what's going on here in verses one through five. After Jabin, king of Hazor, found out about the victories of chapter 10, he being the most influential and most powerful leader around, amassed a coalition that was much larger than the one that was formed in the south. If you remember in chapter 10, Joshua fought against a coalition in the south and he beat them. Well, here now you have a coalition that's not just the north, it's primarily the north, but he even has people from the south, he has people from all over. He has amassed such a great army that it is said here that it is like the sands of the seashore. King of, King, the king of Hazor found out again about those victories. So this coalition was primarily comprised of the northern hemisphere. Now verses 1 through 3 tells of all the various kingdoms and people that were gathered together against Israel. I mentioned this again and I say it again. The people were so numerous that they were accounted as being like sand on the seashore. And notice, brothers and sisters, the weapons they had at their disposal. It says, very many horses and chariots. Now, I want you to move back to like 1890. If you were living in 1890, you know what you would be riding in right now? You would have came to church tonight in a horse and buggy. Now, imagine that someone moved back in time and they had five F-18 fighter jets and they had seven uh, tanks and they went, were able to go back. And then you looked at those tanks and you were about to fight them with those tanks, you know what you would be? Very much afraid. You would look at those things, and if they fired one of those things and said, bow, you'd be like, whoa. It's something that would have been completely foreign to you. You would have been overwhelmed at what was before you. And that is literally what's going on here. 
as Joshua looks and takes stock of the things that are around him, he sees that it is, they have absolutely no chance within themselves to win. So friends, the ads were overwhelmingly against God's people. At this point, Joshua had to know that he and his people were dead meat without God. And that's how we should be. When you talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil, when you have a proper understanding of the forces of the enemy that's against you, you should come to the conclusion, there is no way I can do this without Christ. There is no way I can survive. There's no way I can understand. There's no way I can move forward without God. He is my all in all. He is my protector. He is my banner. And if I ever lose sight of that fact, I will be defeated. And that's what Joshua understood. So it is only then that we will lean when we understand that, that we will lean on the everlasting arms and not pull our own version of AI. You remember when that happened in chapter 7, which will eventually cause us to entertain sin in our camp. When we lean on our own understanding, we will not take stock of all the variables that are involved. But you can see here that Joshua turned to God. And so the second principle we should grab hold of here is the one I have been liberally promoting throughout the pages of this book. Here I'm going to articulate it in the words of Psalm 27, and it is this, wait on the Lord. This, that is your place, your entire hope, place your entire hope, your trust in God. Turn to him and acknowledge your weakness, the direness of your situation, then confidently act as directed by him. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge God, no matter what the situation is. Recognize that it's overwhelming without him. Lean on him. That's exactly what Joshua does here. Joshua hears from God in verse 6, which tells me he sought the Lord, or as Psalm 34 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And thus in the latter Part of verse 6, we hear God saying, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. Joshua, now bootressed by his confidence in God's word, immediately moves into position, acts on the promises of God and experiences the victory that God told him he would have. Folks, if Joshua's knees were shaken yesterday at the prospect of the enemy, today he embodied what another prophet said of anyone, any one of us that waits upon the Lord would embody. And it is, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagle. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. That is a promise of God in his word, that if you rely on him, he will put you in a place of that peace that passes all understanding, and in the midst of all things, you will proceed. The apostle Paul was beaten with stripes. The apostle Paul was jailed. The apostle Paul was, everything was done to him, and what did he do in the midst of all that? He sung the Psalms. He sung. Friends, are you trusting in the God who is mighty 
in the midst of the trials you're dealing with right now? Are you trusting God in the battles you're fighting against the world, your flesh, and the devil? Are you following through in what God has commanded you to do? Here God commanded Joshua to destroy the horse and the chariots. God did this because he did not want the people of Israel trusting in the armament they had. How many of us are trusting in the things that we have, in our money, in whatever family relations, whatever we have? How many of us, if we were honest, would say that that is what we're primarily leaning on and not God? How many of us would say we're trusting in our bank account? That can go tomorrow. Everything we have can go tomorrow. What we have is God. And so Joshua trusted in his whole heart that God would deliver him, and he did. And so that's another principle right there. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That trust will manifest itself in your doing what seems right in God's sight and not your own. You will indeed be living by faith and not by sight. And then you will be able to see the God of the universe move on your behalf, move on our behalf. It's a wonderful thing for an entire congregation to be trusting in God and moving in the power of his might. I say that is what we need to do together. Psalm 27 says, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots. But we at Prayer Archer, we do what? We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Yeah, somebody got to say amen. Here's another principle we see. This one, like some of the others, is a reiteration of what we've seen or heard before. Brothers and sisters, don't play with sin. In verses 10 through 15, Joshua, in obedience to God's command, totally destroys the inhabitants of all the cities. It says that Joshua was obeying that which Moses put forth, which is God's word. And so he's completely destroying everything. He killed the king of Hazor, and like Ai and Jericho, he completely destroyed it by fire. There's something to say about when you are in the lead against God, you will have a greater penalty to pay. I want you to see here that the reason God ordered, because some people might be wondering or saying to themselves, you know what? Part of me is thinking uh, from the standpoint of a human ideology, human secular ideology. Again, man, why did God destroy people like that? Some of those people had to have been innocent. Some of those people had to. I just want to remind you that every single one of us deserves to go to hell. We understand that, right? That all of us were born in sin and there is none righteous, no, not one, according to Romans 3.10, Right? All have sinned and come short, fall short of the righteousness of God, right? And so the reason God ordered this level of destruction was because the sin of the inhabitants had reached such a degree of wretchedness that there was nothing left for them but to be utterly destroyed. And this wasn't something that was unforeseen by God. Way back in Genesis 15, verse 16, God told Abraham that his people would be back in where they were at that point. Abraham was in the promised land then, but not yet. Because what? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, how does this relate to us? 
in the same way Joshua is commanded to utterly destroy that here which represents sin. Everything you see here represents sin. We are called to utterly mortify the sin that so easily besets us, that tries to control us, that allowed not to allow our minds to be conformed to this way of the world and to resist the devil so that he may flee. Failure, brothers and sisters, to strive to do these things will result in our compromising God's ways and truth. And then the end of that will be no good. And say they failed to rid the land. It, as we go forward, we'll see that that happened even with this crew. They failed to rid the land of every and every vestiges, and so they're going to pay Israel with uh, the, the demise because of their decision. Anyway, moving ahead, there's a few other principles I want to quickly show you here in our text. The first one is this. Brothers and sisters, hear me closely. There is no sanctifying bullet. There is no sanctifying silver bullet. In other words, no one becomes a giant of the faith and overcomes sin overnight. Our sanctification is a lifelong process. Here that's communicated in verse 18, where the writer writes, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. So lest we're tempted to believe that Joshua, as it seems here, wiped out all those places in one day or one week or one month or even a year, that's not the case. All the best resources indicate that this took at least seven years for Joshua to do all this. Often, we expect to look and we look for God to remove the obstacle in our lives, the pain, the suffering the wayward child, whatever the case may be that we're praying about. We want God to remove that obstacle immediately. But that's not the way it works. We want, we want God to be like a, a vending machine that gives up their products right there on the spot. But more often than not, that's not the way it works in our sanctification. And so it's important for us then to embrace 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which says this, be steadfast. Be movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Hang on, hold on. The rewards that you will get is greater than anything that you could imagine or even think. Hang on in the midst of whatever you're dealing with. God can give you the grace to deal with whatever. And don't expect everyone around you to come to faith. A next principle as you're in the workplace, wherever you are in your sphere of influence, don't expect everyone to come to faith. Don't expect the people in this world and the things that they're embracing to all of a sudden start loving you. Okay? It's a hard saying, but some are just vessels of wrath. Hate to say it. We don't know who those folks are. We evangelize, we preach the gospel in the highways and byways, but the reality of the situation is some are vessels of wrath. Look at verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Those folks, as we saw, as I've talked about when Moses spoke to them in 15, 16 in Genesis, and he said to them that their hardness, 
had not filled. Well, now it was. And God can have mercy on who he likes. Let us be reminded of that. Again, all of us deserve help. And God can show mercy to whomever he wills. And in this particular case, he's establishing his purpose. He's bringing forth his son as promised in 3.15, Genesis 3.15. And this is the way that he's chosen to do it. These people have hardened their hearts against him. So when it says that God has hardened their hearts, their hearts were already hardened. They were already turned against God. And God did what he said in Romans 1. He gave them up. Because they did not want to retain or hear or want the knowledge of God. Now let me end by sharing one last principle. And that is, it's always, we should always, brothers and sisters hear me. We should always tout the faithfulness of God in our life. This chapter ends with an account of the destructions of the Anakin. You know who that is? That's the same folk the relatives of the same folk who caused Israel to rebel in Numbers 14. Here God is turning right around and completely and destroying the very people who kept their forefathers out of the promised land. God is faithful. He promised in Genesis 12, 7 that he would bring them into the land. And sure enough, he's doing that. Chapter 12 then begins by recounting all the victories. This is why I said we don't need to read the entire thing. Because the first part recounts all the victories that Moses won on the other side of the Jordan, and on the east side of the Jordan. And then they were split up. The land was split up between Manasseh, Gad, and the half-tribe. Half-tribe of Manasseh, actually, and Reuben, right? And then they crossed. And now you have the second part of chapter 12, and now it's Joshua. So first Moses and now Joshua. And it recounts all the victories, all the kings, all the people that God led the victory. And remember, everything that we read, it said God gave them the victory. And so if you wanted to summarize chapter 12 under any heading, it would be this. A song we well know. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, our Father. Now, let me ask you. Because that's what chapter 12 is all about. Chapter 12 is them looking back and saying, here is all that God has done on our behalf. We are here now in a place of rest because God has done all this. Brothers and sisters, do you look back at the cross and say, we're here today with all that we have, with the revelation of Jesus Christ and everything else that we have pour all the blessings because God did that. Do we look back over our life, our lives, and think things over, this is a song, and say that we're truly blessed, we have a testimony? Do we do that? Do we walk in the knowledge of God's goodness towards us and all the things that he's done? Do we look, for those of us who have children and children, children, do we look at the blessings that God has given us in that sense? The familiar relationships, I talked about the negative relationships. What about the ones that God has healed by the power of his spirit? Do we look at those things and praise God for what he's doing? That is what chapter 12 is all about. Looking at the faithfulness of God that he would say in Genesis 12, 7, that he would give them the land and now here they are. Through all the trials, 
all the things that they went through, here they are in the land in a place of rest. All of us who are in Christ are in a place of rest. The God who promised to deliver in 12-7 has done what he said he would do. Brothers and sisters, do you look back over your life again and think things over? Do you exclaim that God has been faithful, that he has been good? Therefore, you have a testimony. Therefore, you are persuaded to go into the highways and byways in your sphere of influence and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with your neighbor, with your friend, with your co-worker. I declare to you that the God who said he would deliver for us in Genesis 3.15 has done precisely that in his son. The question is, will we respond as Joshua did, advancing through life by and through our obedience to Christ? Or will we harden our hearts and walk according to the dictates of our own fallen hearts? As Steve Brown would say, Y'all think about that. Let's pray. Our good and gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this vision or this visage of Joshua leading his people uh, through the promised land, the places that you have promised, and for the connection that we now know that Christ has led us in himself to a place of rest, to a place of peace in him. And now we are walking the road of our sanctification, being molded and shaped into his image for his purposes and for his glory. We pray, Lord, that as Joshua walked in obedience to your word, that you would give us a zeal in our heart to do likewise, to walk in obedience to your word, knowing that you have called us as your vessels, as your ambassadors to go into the highways and byways, bringing the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to all who come across our path. Bless us individually and bless us as a church as we are about the mission of advancing your kingdom for your glory and for your purposes. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.